Let's take it to the edge. Let's get the flitting. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Let's talk about the night perspective. Hello and welcome to Knife Perspective, where we get to the point of all things knife-related. Uh, today we have a great guest. We're pretty excited, and my uh, co-host Dan Eastland of Dogwood Custom Knives. Want to say hi to everybody, Dan? Hi, everybody. Glad to be here, Kyle. You, you, you're really getting into this announcer voice. That's a that's a nice, rich baritone you've had today. I'm I'm proud of. It. Thank you. We're Knife Perspective. We. Uh, talk about all things that uh, are knife related and today we're going to talk about uh, some some heat treating and steels magic we're going to talk about magic we're going to talk about our sponsors cage daily knives we do all sorts of bushcraft in uh, kitchen knives we have uh, dogwood custom knives dogwood custom knives for all your knife needs <laughs> there you go I do on that one, Dan. very well right. see and you just got to pull the engineer out of the cubicle, give him a little sunlight, maybe a drink. He warms right up. Yeah. Can loosen up every every once in a while. Yeah. So uh, we also want to give a shout out to uh, some of our dealers. Old Town Cutlery is one of both of our dealers. Uh, Dogwood Custom Knives and Cage Daily Knives. You can find them on the in links in the show notes on our website and in the uh, in the details on the on iTunes, and you can also find Dan's Knives at Knife Center. They do a great job there also. Uh, I thought you had some knives there too. No, not yet. Uh, Haven't done any. All right. There was a, the recent develop, recent development of the uh, the local butcher shop is thinking about carrying some of my knives. The uh, owner just put in an order for a Damascus Santoku. So Very that could cool. Be pretty cool. Yeah, so I'm pretty excited about that. He's uh, we're doing the the old barter system, so I'm getting a, a ton of meat. So that's great. <clears throat> yeah, I'm, uh, that, that I'm just going to leave that right there. <laughs> All right, what are you working on in the shop this week, Dan? Uh, this week has been a little bit of organized chaos. I've got some pairing knives coming out. I've got some boning knives coming out. And I think I've got a couple of Hawkins in there. It's been, I usually try to work in consistent batches, but this week has been a little bit of a, a smorgasbord, if you will. That's cool. Uh, some very cool new handle combinations coming in the next couple of days. Uh, some of my blade show treasures are finally making it to the market. Yeah. Very cool. How about yourself? So uh, I'm recovering from my whirlwind that was my cousin's wedding. So delivered the four knives to him, and uh, he was super excited about them. That was the one of the talks of the wedding. Oh, they were stunning. Yeah, those Damascus ones, especially the chef's knife, the pattern on that just turned out super awesome. And uh, kind of recovering from that a little bit, and uh, it was a long, long weekend with the boys up in Cleveland. Uh, but yesterday, I ma managed to make it over to Atlas Billiards and uh... Uh, talk to... Uh, a guy there, Dan, 
Are we going to let them, are we going to let everybody know about our secret? No, uh, I think a lot of people already do. Do but, they? But yeah. Uh, I mean, did, yeah, you, so, uh, did you put a big order in? So if, if people start buying, you're going to be good. <laughs> I, I saw all their inventory and just pick stuff off the, uh, off the racks. Damn. Uh, just, they had, they had thousands of pounds of G10 and Micarta and Juma and stuff. That Juma um, is cool. Yeah, and he said the the Juma and that ivory that I was telling you about is uh, FDA safe. Uh, so I just got a block of the ivory to to experiment with. Yeah, yeah they uh, they hooked me up with a ton of different colors for the uh, eighth inch and three sixteenths pins, and I bought a bought a bunch of Kieranite. The the colored pins are are the. I've been hesitant to tell people about it, but it's only fair. I've I've already started working the colored pins in yeah. to the some of the my handle combos. Okay. I, oh man, it, I've been waiting for somebody to do that for years. I've been so frustrated with black G10 or white G10, natural Macarta or black Macarta. Yeah. Well, they, he said they're going to do the whole color spectrum. So I think it was like sixteen or eighteen different colors they're going to end up having. I went through, I guess it was last week, and just started clicking one of everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I ended up uh, going there to get some 30,000s white liners and maybe a couple other things and ended up with significantly more stuff. I love uh, the way the, the Juma. I saw you got a, uh, four or five pieces of it. Yeah, that dragon scale yeah, stuff. It, it polishes out really well. Awesome. Yeah, I was. I'm pretty excited. Was able to even pick out the the pieces that I that I wanted to. So that was that was pretty cool too. I, I'm a little envious. I'd like to check the place out because I always knew of them f- as just bulk Macarta. Like every year, I'd buy eight square feet of Macarta from them or something like that. Actually, I guess it was it was four by eight. So, hey, engineer, what's four times eight? Uh, thirty-two. 30, yeah, thirty-two. Yeah, I'd, I'd buy like thirty-two square feet of Macarta from them and had no idea of all the other stuff that they do. Well, they're one of the, one of the distributor branches for the uh, really big Macarta company that they, they supply uh, McMaster car and a bunch of the other places with their Macarta. What was awesome was I was in Dan's office and they use some uh, eight inch by eight inch uh, canvas Macarta blocks as uh, file holder <laughs> it, like bookends. <laughs> That's pretty cool. It probably weighs twenty pounds. It's pretty amazing. But uh, yeah, so that was pretty cool getting to meet him, talk to him. He's good people. He came by the booth at the Blade Show, mm-hmm. uh, and that's how I found out about uh, how much stuff they do and the the color colored rod stock. Yeah, and they're they're exta- expanding. A bunch of stuff so they're really wanting to get into the, the knife handle thing and it was amazing to see a bunch of the the billiard stuff too it was really cool they they had some radially laminated rods and stuff that were wood so there were eight little pie shapes all put together and that thought that was pretty neat yeah because uh, again i thought of them as just uh, pool tables because from what i understand rather than using slate people have been using micarta for pool tables. And so I went on their website. I didn't even think about the custom pool cue market. Yeah. 
yeah, their their website is qstick.com. So, and that was that's uh C U E S T I K, not C K. So, qstick.com. They really uh really hooked you up and um they it was really awesome to to see a bunch of the stuff. They got a ton of spalted beach and different uh woods that they're going to be trying to put up on the website also. Nice. So let's uh, get into it. Our our guest today is Jared Sponzilli. Wizard and master of the dark arts of heat treat. Yeah, he's a metallurgist at uh, Navistar where I work. And uh want to say hi, Jared? Uh, yeah, hi. Hi, Jared. Welcome to the I show. Think, uh, I like that wizard and master of the dark arts. I might put that on my business card. It, it sounds yeah. way cooler than metallurgist. It Although, does. It, anybody knowledgeable knows that it's the same thing. <laughs> So Jared does a great job uh, with us. Uh, Our, the department that I work in works really well with them and he helps uh, bring in parts that are failed and he can tell us uh, pretty much anything we want to know about them. And uh, he also helps out a bunch of the manufacturing plant. Anything else you want to want to give us in a couple descriptions on how you got to where you are, Jared? Sure. Um, Tell us about the journey that is your life. Well, uh, so here's here's the short version. Uh, uh, when I was looking through the course catalog for the U of I, which is where I got my undergraduate degree, there was a note in there that said that applicants to the metallurgy school will be given special consideration because they didn't have enough applicants. And I said, that is the one for me. <laughs> it's a pretty competitive school, and I wasn't sure at all I was going to get in. So I figured I would take that, uh, take that advantage. And lo and behold... Um, I kind of enjoyed it, so I stuck with it. That was about 25 years ago. I spent about 10 years in um, uh, heat treating business, uh, mostly with um, aircraft uh, gears. And then for about 15 years, like Kyle said, I've been at Navistar doing a lot of uh, mostly failure analysis, but really kind of a broad cross-section. So you find the gremlins and then cast out the evil spirits? Uh, th- that's not the technical term, but I guess basically, yeah, that's, that's what you would reduce it down to. Awesome. And your, your dad was a metallurgist too, correct? He was, yeah, for 42 years. Yeah. That's actually who I have by, or how I got my hardness tester in my basement here. So it's pretty cool to get to meet him and talk to him. But, uh, well, first thing we were wanting to talk about is we wanted to kind of talk about steels and then we want to, wanted to talk about some of the heat treat stuff. So, um, we had there are a couple main main steels. We've got uh, carbon steel and uh, high carbon steel, tool steel, and stainless steels. Do you want to uh, want to kind of go into any? Sure. So um, you know, I'll I'll kind of start talking maybe, and you guys feel free to redirect me or dig deeper or whatever. But um, like you said, Kyle, um, kind of the the. The most basic steel, what a lot of people refer to as mild steel, also as carbon steel, that basically has very little alloying elements in it, mostly just manganese and carbon. Both of those help hardenability and hardness. Uh, You'll find those used, a lot of times we call them structural steels. A lot of them are the lower carbon varieties are stuff that you might weld or or even use in the unheat-treated condition altogether. Like I-beams and that kind of stuff used in construction. Yeah, right, right. Shipbuilding, um, stuff like that. 
you start to get into the higher carbon steels. That's so generally carbon steels are divided into like low carbon, medium carbon, and high carbon. And low carbon might be up to about 0.25 weight percent carbon. And then you get into the medium carbon grades, which are probably 0.25 to maybe, I don't know, 0.65 or so, 70, something like that. And then higher carbon grades are maybe 0.70 weight percent, probably up to maybe 0.95. I think sometimes they might go a little bit higher, but not, not too often. So uh, uh, higher carbon grades, they can be, they can achieve high hardnesses. So I think that you guys use some of those high carbon, plain carbon steels. We do. For, uh, for knife making, yeah. Dan's used a lot more than I have. He's done a lot with, uh, you did 1084 and 1095, wasn't it? I did. And then with the tool steels, I did a lot of 01. We should probably explain with the, the carbon steels, the 10, if I'm cr- Please correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but the 10 lets you know that it's a simple carbon steel. And then the second number is how much carbon is in it. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, so for carbon steels, yeah, they, they're always prefixed with the 10 and that's the AISI grade, but they're prefixed with the 10. And that refers to the alloy content. And in the case of carbon steels, that's basically just manganese. And then the, the 75 would mean it's 0.75% or it has 0.75% carbon in it. 0.75 by weight. Yep. Yep. And then 1095 would be 0.95. Is there anything higher than 1095? Uh, you know, I'm not familiar with anything in the carbon steel kind of family that really is higher than 1095. Um, it's not to say that it doesn't exist, but uh, it's not in common usage, I don't think. I, I knew there was a higher limit. At, at some point, the carbon wouldn't dissolve in the iron anymore, but I, I didn't sure. know what point that was. Sure. So at about 0.77 weight percent, that's what's called the eutectic composition. And beyond that, you're going to end up with perlite and carbide. So carbide is is basically just carbon and, and uh, it's a second phase and it's carbon and iron or manganese bound together. And they're separate particles. They're not part of the real the, the steel matrix. And those are going to start forming generally above that 0.77 composition. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're quenching and tempering, things change a little bit. You can dissolve a little bit more carbon in a in a in a quench and tempered structure, martensitic structure. Right. The higher end just gets to be the carbon doesn't dissolve anymore, and then you would get, for lack of a, a better term, an inclusion or an impurity that could cause a weakness in the steel. Yeah, you'll you'll get carbides, and there are certain applications where where uh, that's good or at least not harmful. But there there are certainly others where it tends to make it brittle. Um, and a lot of cases, that's something you want to avoid. So, yeah, I know the, the a lot of the tool steels have a lot of carbides. Mm-hmm. D two specific. Yeah. What makes a tool steel a tool steel? So, tool steels. Um, you know, in, in in my understanding, mostly it's it's a lot having a lot of carbide in there, and the carbide. You know, they're called tool steels because they're used they're because they make tools out of them, namely cutting tools and dies and things like that. And so in, in those instances, the things that are important are very high hardness, very good wear resistance, and then they got to have some toughness because especially if you're talking about forging dies or something like that, or even cutting tools, um, you know, they need to be able to withstand a certain amount of impact and vibration when they're being used uh, for cutting stamping operations. I used to pitch one. Of course, it's a great blade steel because that's what you use to cut steel. And if it'll cut steel, then... You know, it'll cut anything you want to do. Sure, that's that's a good point. Yeah, 
Yeah, good point. Hey, I mean, it was marketing, but it was it, in this rare occasion, it was mostly honest marketing. So I, I'm going to take a gold star. Yeah, and that um, I'm not sure if it's actually why they put A and O with those steels, but A like A2 is an air hardening mm-hmm. and then oil is a, or O1 is an oil hardening. Yeah. And, and W2 is water quenching or is it? Uh, now I've got to go look. I've, I've never actually quenched W2. I know D2 I've, you just air, air quenched it. But, uh, so the other, the other grade is stainless steels. Can you uh, tell us what makes stainless, uh, steel stainless? Sure. For the most part, uh, we would call a steel or put it in the stainless family when it's got over about 10% chrome. Although that's not a hard and fast rule, and I'm sure you know, people see people violating it. The truth is you get some of that protective. So, so you want chrome in there because what the chrome does is it forms a passive oxide film on the surface of the steel. And that film is great because it's very tenacious. It sticks to the surface of the steel real well. And it also will reform spontaneously at room temperature and pressure. So the idea is if you scratch the surface and you rub that oxide film away, it will reform immediately. So that's really kind of what makes stainless steel stainless is the formation of that oxide film. And that's facilitated by the presence of chrome. We typically think of seals with greater than 10% chrome as in the stainless family. But the truth is you get some of that effect that even lower chrome contents down to 5%, you'll, you'll even get some of that stainless effect. So it's it's just alloy compounds are added that causes a, a very quick thin layer of oxidation yeah. so that the steel can't continue to get worse oxidation like rust or that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, when you think about your car and you, you, you paint your car and that's one of the things that they use to help prevent rust. And the reason that paint helps prevent rust is it's a barrier coating, right? It just prevents the environment, the road, the salt, and the, and the water from the road to getting to the bare metal. And that oxide film serves the same function. It's really a barrier coating that present, prevents the steel underneath from coming in contact with the, with the environment. Kind of like when people force patina a simple carbon blade to protect it. Same thing's happening just really fast and you mm-hmm. can't see it. Yeah, Okay. exactly. Yeah. Now, so stainlesses, as you know, uh, th- th- I mean, there's just an almost dizzying array of different steels that are called stainless steel and chrome is kind of the defining characteristic of stainless or not stainless but uh, stainless steels can be alloyed with uh, nickel is very common uh, molly um, and then if you're talking about you know kind of the wear resistant stainlesses you, you've got other alloy elements like niobium and titanium and, and things like that so there's there's a whole you know array of other alloying elements that might be added to a stainless steel but uh, fundamentally yeah it's that chrome and one of the one of the big things you have to remember with stainless steels is it's they stain less. They aren't <laughs> yes. rust proof. That is absolutely right. uh, A lot of people have tried to well, it's stainless. It shouldn't rust at all. It's like well, that's why they call it stainless. And some people want to send their knives back to get uh, spa treatments and things to polish them back up to oh. what they look like. Well, and I've noticed so AEBL I've done with a lot of kitchen knives because the chefs like it because it's a little easier to sharpen. And I've had some home cooks leave it, like leave one in water overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll complain that it's rust, but they'll say, but it immediately wiped off. Well, that's because it was a little surface rust. You're fine. Move on. But there's an advantage to even some of the stainless steels, even though they'll rust, it'll be a soft surface rust and not a deep pitting rust. 
You know, one of the things that we talk about with stainless steels that are for um, kind of appearance applications is passivation. I don't know if you guys talk about that or... That's not a term I know. Okay, so so on stainlesses, if you get, you know, what's common is you have a factory and they're making a part out of stainless steel and maybe they use the same cutting fluid that they cut carbon steel or alloy steel on or, and, and you'll get little fine particles of essentially iron on the surface of the stainless uh, and it can look for all the world like it's rusting so to combat that it's not of course yeah uh, but you know some sometimes if you're you're you have a part that you don't want to 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 have that appearance that rusty appearance uh you would passivate it and that is a process where you basically um subject it to um pretty high concentration of nitric acid and it basically dissolves any of that surface rust hmm. and um and that's kind of the way to prevent that, that surface corrosion. I, I assume that's kind of like using a, a mild acid like vinegar to um, when you have a, a badly rusted product that you don't want to use abrasion to try and remove the rust. Yeah, I don't know if that's similar or not. I've seen that. Um, I, I've done it on some restoration projects, so I assume it's yeah. the, the same mm-hmm. process. I mean, it's the same in that it's an immersion process, yeah. Um, it's definitely a lot more aggressive than vinegar. Yeah. I know I've seen a lot of passivation on different welds and stuff also. Lots of TIG welding stuff mm-hmm. on Instagram. Lots of cool cool videos of those guys doing that stuff. Let's jump into some of the different elements. We just I kind of pulled out a few of them. So iron is the, the main element that makes steel steel. And then uh, we have some of the other things. So do you want to want to kind of run through some of the ones and kind of say some of its main effects on steel and the, the composition when you're looking at? Sure, sure. So uh, carbon, uh, what's its main effect on the steel? We talked about it a little bit before. Yeah, so carbon is the granddaddy of, of all the alloying elements, by far the most important one um, when it comes to steel. Um, and <clears throat> carbon promotes hardenability. And, and hardenability is basically, um, it's the th- thickness, you can think of it, as the thickness of a steel part that you can fully quench, or you can quench, and get full hardness in the center of that piece of steel. So, for instance, if you have uh, 1035 steel, say, um, which is 0.35 carbon, uh, you'll be able to harden it to a depth of, you know, you'll be able to through harden a piece of 1035 to, I don't know, let's just say an eighth of an inch thick piece of steel. You'll be able to get the same hardness through the entire thickness with 1035. If you go to a quarter inch, you're not going to get the full hardness in the center of that section. But if you bump up the carbon a little bit, you'll get that hardening effect to go a little bit deeper. And that's what's known as hardenability. The hardness not going all the way through, is that a is that what they mean by case hardening, or is that an entirely different process? It is a different process, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we can talk about that. But so, so carbon helps hardenability. Your maximum achievable hardness is also a function of carbon. So that 1035 piece of steel, you fully quench it, it's going to have a max hardness of, again, I'm kind of pulling this out of the air, but maybe 35 or something. You know, a 1045 steel, you're going to be able to quench that out to maybe 45. And, and you're talking about the Rockwell scale? Rock, we'll see, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then my favorite point about carbon is a little bit, I'm going to get a little philosophical on you, but the the interaction between carbon 
and iron, the carbon atoms and the iron atoms, and the way they behave when you quench them, uh, they, they go through this martensitic transformation. And that martensitic transformation, which is very unique, it happens in a few other alloy systems, but not many. Um, the fact that carbon and iron behave that way together is what allowed us to have heat treatable steel and really is the technology that enabled you know, so many things, the automobile, space travel, air travel, all these incredible technologies are really a function of the ability of carbon and iron to do these goofy things when you heat them and, and cool them real quick. That's what got us past the Bronze Age, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, when uh, when you when you say hardenability, that makes me think of my college professor that in uh, my metal, metallurgy class was my first class my freshman year, and one of the first things he said was, if you learn nothing in this class, you'll learn that hardenability is the ability to get hard. <laughs> and that was that was literally the first question on every exam that we had. Uh, it was hardenability is the ability to blank, and we had to fill that in. So, Well, that's a good description. It'll probably a little bit simpler than what I gave you, but yeah. So, <laughs> so but, the carbon yeah. dissolves into the iron. Uh, the other um, uh, The other compounds... Do they dissolve as well, or how do they interact with, with the basic steel? So it, it depends. Um, and carbon, um, so when you buy a piece of... Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, th- uh, to throw you one off of the script. It's just... Uh, no, no, th- th- that's fine. It, it depends. So carbon, um, I guess we'll, we'll talk in, in the quench and tempered context, right? Because that's what we're usually using. Yeah, for... Assume the rest of our conversation is specific to blades. Yeah, okay. So everything is heat treated. So uh, you're heat treating, you're quenching and tempering it. In that case, the carbon exists in the interstitial locations in the iron lattice. So the, the iron exists in what they call a body center tetra- tetragonal arrangement where you have atoms at the corners and that's super important, but the carbon is real small. And so it can fit inside that cart, that lattice of iron atoms. Okay. And what happens is the carbon actually uh, causes that lattice to be distorted mm-hmm. bigger than it really wants to be. And, and that distortion of the lattice is really what gives you the hardness and strength. So the more distorted you are, the more distorted that lattice is, the, the stronger the structure will be. So carbon exists in those interstitial locations. Some of the other elements will exist either outside the lattice in the form of carbides. Uh, They can exist as what's known as a substitutional atom, where that iron atom on the lattice will be replaced with with, um, a chromium atom, for instance. But the structure stays the same? The structure stays the same, yeah. So it depends on the element. Or the the element, you know, the size of actually the size of the atom relative to the lattice, as to where it's actually got physical space to fit. And and the body centric, that's in the Martin site. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Because there's also uh, was it something faced where when you're in the softer structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's face centered cubic, and that's face, what, I'm sorry. yep face centered cubic, and that's basically an what an austenitic structure is. So if you ever work with austenitic stainless steels, they're going to have that FCC structure. Um, and then the high temperature form of iron, which you don't use in an engineering sense, but it's important because it's a part of the heat treat process is, is also face center cubic. So when you heat your knife up to, uh, you know, if it's 1500 for a carbon steel or, you know, 1900 for a high alloy steel, uh, you're heating it into that face center cubic regime. So as you heat it, the, the, the literal structure changes. 
Yeah, the atoms are moving around. And the carbon is able to move in between those atoms, and then you quench it and lock it into that position, and that's what gives yeah. you the hardened blade. Yeah. yeah. That's science. Yeah, really cool stuff. It's, uh, I, that's one of my favorite things to do is take video of me pulling knives out of the oven, and it's just a, it's so cool to see those red-hot blades and transferring and everything. Yeah, it's impressive. The two things that apprentices are impressed with or people that visit the shop are either when I'm doing the stainless steel and it's at 1,900, 2,000 degrees in the kiln and everything is glowing, or when I take you know a blade out at 14, 1,500 degrees and then stick it into warm oil and there's no flame. And it, there's always that head scratching of you know people will step back as I go, oh, I'm going to stick this into oil. And there's that moment of, hey, what happened? Okay, oxygen. Let, let's work through this, but it's always fun to see the, the look on their face when I tell them I'm about to stick a, a glowing hot piece of steel in oil. Another uh, element that you see on the, the data sheets and stuff, a bunch is manganese. Want to talk about what, what that kind of does? Sure. So so manganese is probably maybe the second most important, uh, and it, it serves some of the same functions. It improves hardenability. Um, it strengthens ferrite, which um, is the unheat-treated form of, of iron, so we're not too concerned about that. Um, it's also used as part of the steelmaking process as it serves as a deoxidizer. Oxygen in the steelmaking process is generally never good, so we do a lot of different things to try and remove oxygen from the melt, um, and manganese helps with that. Um, the other thing that you will see manganese used for is to combine up with sulfur, and when it does that, it forms a certain kind of inclusion that helps machinability. Thanks. That was one of the other ones on the list with sulfur. Uh, silicon is another one that I saw quite a bit on different data sheets for knives that I was looking at. Silicon is mostly there as a deoxidizer. Again, that serves, that helps the steel maker uh, uh, reduce the amount of oxygen in the steel. It doesn't really have much function beyond that in terms of properties. Um, there are some materials, actually more cast irons, where you'll see high silicon contents that can help corrosion resistance and stuff. But mostly for steel, um, it's it's not really a functional addition. Um, you know, after after the, the ingot is solidified. So is is phosphorus one of the other ones that does kind of deoxidizing also, or I don't think that phos deoxidizes uh, has much of a deoxidizing effect. Phosphorus is really a tramp element. Um, again, there are a few cast irons where you specifically control to a certain range, but basically your phos content is always going to be specified as a max. And with almost out exception, you you prefer less phosphorus. Okay. Yeah. The... Uh, you'll see a lot of specs, incidentally. Um, that specify maybe 0.035 max phosphorus, uh, maybe 0.025 max. Um, and those those specs are kind of relics of uh, an older steel technology. Uh, point being that today, most modern steel mills are producing steels with phosphorus quite a bit lower than what those spec values that you see. Was that because they couldn't keep the – it was a matter of trying to minimize the contamination? Okay. Yeah. yeah, steel making has really come a long way in the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years. 
so four of the um, other elements that I saw were tungsten, chromium, molybdenum, and vanadium uh, were the other four. A lot of those help with uh, corrosion resistance, right? Well, um, so let's see. Uh, niobium and vanadium are kind of unique because they are usually found in pretty low levels unless probably you're getting into some of the tool steels, but their function is really what they call a grain refiner. Mm-hmm. And uh, they help, uh, for the most part, uh, steels that have a finer grain size, a smaller grain size, are going to perform, are going to have better mechanical properties. So vanadium and niobium help uh, maintain that fine grain size. They also will form carbides. Tungsten I believe is mostly used as a carbide former. And what was the other one? Chromium. Chrome is definitely a carbide former. Uh, it serves as, um, it improves hardenability. Uh, it improves corrosion resistance like we already discussed. Yeah, it's kind of a multi, multi-talented element. And the looking ahead on the show notes, we've got a whole section on talking about grain structure. So I won't start geeking out on, on things to make finer grain structures and why that's important. But just as a warning, it's coming. Yeah, that's one of Dan's uh, questions that he was most excited about. Oh, boy. Well, I hope I don't disappoint you. Yeah, I I work with a lot of particle steels. Okay. And um, when we get to it, I've got some grain structures and the uh, questions and the difference between grains and carbides and why it's important and – what ha- well, we'll get to that part. I, I've read like two metallurgical books, so I know a few terms, but I don't really understand anything. So I'm really looking forward to getting some education on on grain structure. All right, well, that's a little bit of pressure, but I can I can handle it. It's all right. Neither of the books were terribly thick. Uh, one of them was written in crayon. You'll be fine. Okay. <laughs> nice. Um, oh, hey, look, here we are at the grain structure section of today's conversation. Excellent. Um, so big question or the broad questions is how does grain structure affect the steel or perhaps we even need to start with what are, what is a grain or, and why is that important? Sure. So when we talk about kind of the structure of steel, there's kind of the overall term that we use, which is microstructure. And that encompasses all the different things we see in the steel, be it carbides, be it grains, be it martensite or ferrite or perlite. All those things are kind of part of the microstructure of, of a steel part. So to break it down a little bit further, when we talk about, and this term gets misused a lot of times, but grains or grain size. So a grain of, of, of steel is a volume of material. And I, we talked about that lattice structure, right? The iron, the atoms are all arranged in this very specific structure. So it's a volume of material where those grain, those, um, those lattices, those cubes, are all in the same orientation, right? <clears throat> and a grain boundary is the point at which you have another volume of grains next to it, which are at a different orientation. Uh, so as, as heat, as steel heats up or as it cools, you'll have like colonies of grain structures. It doesn't start at one side and move all the, all the way across the steel. They, they start forming at different places in steel and grow to meet each other? So, um, okay, so 
<laughs> I told you I know just enough my head around it for... understand what I'm talking about. So, well, when you're talking about boundaries on the structures, boundaries. Yep. those boundaries are formed because the grains start forming at different spots and grow out from those spots and then they impinge on one another. Okay. And where those, where they impinge is where you get a grain boundary. And it's the, a visual concept of that would be a stack of boxes moving into one direction and they meet a stack of boxes that are at a slightly different angle. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. I can wrap my simple dyslexic brain around that. So, so that's what a grain is. Now, why do we care about that? Now, so when you look at a quenching tempered steel, especially one with that's, that's pretty clean steel, it's made with modern steel making technology, i.e. low FOS, like we talked about, you're not going to really see grain size. Okay, you're not going to see those individual volumes of material. And the reason is those grain boundaries just don't show up really well, at least not easily. Are we talking 800 magnification, 1,000 magnification? Or what would it take to see grain structure in modern? It's, it's not actually a matter of magnification. It's, it's um, if you try to image that structure with light, the grain boundary, it's hard. So you have to, you're familiar with etching steel, right? That's how you get the patterns on the surface. But it's also how you look at microstructure. So we'll take a, a piece, we'll cut it, cut it in half, and we'll polish it to a super fine finish, and then we'll etch it uh, a lot of times with weak nitric acid. And that'll re reveal a lot of these structures that we can look at on a microscope. Mm -hmm. But as it turns out, the thing that helps you see grain boundaries tends to be phosphorus that segregates to those boundaries. Well, guess what? If you don't have a lot of phosphorus, you're not going to be able to see those grain boundaries very well. Huh. So it's not actually a matter of magnification. There are other techniques for imaging where you can see them, um, but they're, they're not really in common use. So in a quenched and tempered steel, you don't really see the grain size without taking some pretty special precautions. doesn't mean it doesn't exist, just difficult to see. For general perception, is it easier to think of it as a microscopic structure or, I mean, how small a structure are we talking about? Yeah. So, um, atomic structure or. Yeah, yeah no, no. Um, so, uh, we refer to grains, uh, as a grain size, it's a numerical number, say, uh, well, in steels, typically we, we talk about grain sizes from maybe five up to, maybe 13 or 14. And as the number gets numerically bigger, the grain gets smaller and smaller. So, um, like a grit. Yeah. Like a grit. Uh, I, I don't have the, I don't have it in front of me. So I'm, I'm guessing a little bit here, but, um, you know, at a hundred X, you will be, if you're able to reveal those boundaries, you'll see them. Okay. Yeah. So a hundred times magnification, you'll see them. Yeah. They're not, they're not like atomic scale or anything like that. All right. So, so it's, it's perceivable sizes. Mm -hmm. We're not talking need an electron microscope to see atomic structure. Yeah, correct. Okay. So, so that's grains and, and grain size is important because probably for, for our purposes, it, it affects yield strength, right? If you're familiar with a, a stress strain curve, the yield point is where the steel basically becomes permanently deformed, right? It's the elastic limit. In simple terms, bent. Bent, yeah. So you can you can take a take a long piece of steel between two hands, and you can bend a little bit, and it's going to spring right back, right? But if you bend it too far, it's going to stay, and that means that you've yielded it. So the grain size is a tool that you can use to increase that yield strength without 
getting some of the negative side effects that you would get just by, you know, quenching it to a higher hardness or something. Um, and is that because the smaller grain structure has, it interlocks at a, at a tighter or has, well, no, it wouldn't be more surface area, would it? But because the grains are smaller, they lock together tighter? Um, you might be able to say that, but basically, um, I'm not going to do a great job of explaining this. I don't think, but when, when you, when you plant, you can tell me I'm wrong. I've, like I said, I, this is something I'm interested in, but I've got a very good So let me explain it and maybe you could decide how close it was or not. But, but basically when you, when you are, uh, uh, permanently deforming a piece of metal, um, that permanent deformation comes about by the movement in the, in the atomic structure of what we call dislocations. And it's not super important what those are, but it's just a way that the atoms rearrange themselves to accommodate kind of that bent shape. Right. So the reason that finer grain sizes, uh, help prevent that, uh, permanent deformation, that plastic deformation is because the grains act as impediments to the movement of those dislocations. So these things want to be moving through the structure. The atoms want to be rearranging themselves to accommodate this bent shape, right? You're going to. Oh, and, but the more grains that are in the way, the more grain boundaries got across, not easy to cross that grain boundary, right? It's like the Rio Grande. It's not easy. Gotcha. So the more of those that you got in there, the, the more difficult it's going to be to move those dislocations around. And the smaller they are, the more of those boundaries you can have in a given area. Exactly. Okay. Um, now grain structure will also determine how keen an edge can get. Uh, correct. Well, like the the larger the grain structure, or the finer the grain structure, the the finer the edge you can have. Well, that one I'm not. I don't know if I can answer that intelligently. Um, the the analogy I've heard before is if you have a pile of sand and a pile of gravel, mm-hmm. and you you push you push the sand up between your hands to to make an edge. Mm-hmm. And then you take the gravel and you push that between your hands to make an edge. Mm-hmm. The the pile of sand is going to have – the edge is going to be more narrow yeah. because the particles are smaller so that they can be shaped into a, a, a thinner edge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand the analogy. Doesn't necessarily mean it's true. I was just – Yeah, no, I, I, don't, I don't know, to be honest with you. I, I can't – I'm trying to think of a, 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 a situation that I might have encountered in my work career that might – have a bearing on that, but I, I don't. And again, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, to blindside you. Uh, This is one of those things that I I sit up late at night thinking about. (laughs) That's really best up, Dan. (laughs) Yeah. Once you've been married 20 something years, man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, That's a good question. I, I'm not aware of what effect. Uh, grain size would have on the ability to polish to an an edge like that. So once, uh, when we have you back on, and at this point we, I certainly plan on having you back on. One of the questions I want you to be prepared to answer is what the grain structure, what effect the grain structure will have on, uh, on forming an edge. That's an interesting question. I will do my best to answer that. And I will pay you in goodwill, alcohol or food. If you come to Greenville. All right. Or all three? Oh, yeah. Hell, you can have double goodwill if you want. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, so one of the other questions we had about grain structure is uh, why are carbides 
uh, important in the steel structure. So carbides are simply just going to give you wear resistance. That's really that's really the thing that they do for you. The analogy I've I heard again. I used to be in construction, so we come back to concrete. Putting gravel pieces of granite in the concrete made it more wear resistant because as the the concrete or the cement wore away, the gravel was exposed, and that resists wear better than the concrete did. As as something rubbed against that that combination of the two, the mixture of the two, the gravel would resist the wear and that would protect the cement around it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good example. So maybe one thing that, that I didn't say and we should have talked, we talked a lot about grains, grains and grain size and all that stuff. Carbides are kind of a separate part of the microstructure, right? We've said the microstructure is the whole thing. Uh, grains are part of it. That's kind of the steel matrix, the martensitic matrix, right? And carbides exist separate from that matrix. They're kind of interspersed in that matrix. Um, so they have kind of a different uh, description of size. And with the right equipment, you can actually measure the hardness of those carbides. And if you do that, depending on what alloy carbide they are, if they're, you know, niobium or tungsten or chrome. So the carbide isn't just carbon. It's it's the other alloy. Right, right, right. Okay. right. Yeah, and de- and which element the carbon is alloyed with will depend will determine the hardness of that particular carbide, um, and those hardnesses can be you know sixty five, seventy, seventy five Rockwell C. So you can see where your steel where your steel matrix is you know fifty five, fifty eight, fifty nine, sixty something like that. And that's where a wear resistance starts to come in. Right. How hard the carbides are. That's how it helps wear resistance. Yes. Right. Yeah, I know the larger the carbides, that has an effect on the edge. Like regular D2, when you when you sharpen it, you'll get more of a serrated edge. When when they make it like a powdered metal version of that, they're able to make it a little bit keener. So the the carbide because the right. carbides aren't as big to kind of chip out while it's being sharpened. And my understanding is the and there's a whole section about because I use particle steel about uh, particle steel. But my understanding is that's because the carbides and the grains are smaller when they're uh, when they're forged. Is that would that be correct? The correct term for making steel. Yeah. So um, I have to thank you guys because I, I learned a lot about particle steel uh, when I was kind of preparing a little bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Crucible. Crucible making right. the finest steels in all the world. You know what I was surprised is that. They really market to the blade manufacturers. Mm-hmm. They have a lot. A lot of their materials is geared really towards towards you guys, I guess. Hey, we're pretty important people. Well, that's what I didn't realize. Yeah, I mean, I knew that Kyle was important, but I didn't, you know, realize quite how important. Yeah, but anyhow, a lot of their materials are geared really specifically toward blade making. Um, which I, I was kind of surprised to find. A lot of those data sheets I printed out were specific knife knife seals that were yeah. designed just for knife makers, and yeah, yeah. a lot of them are also are 440C, AB, ABL, were like razor blade type stuff also. Yep, yep. So, yeah, the particle steels, um, they atomize it basically through a spray nozzle, and when it hits the air, it, it solidifies in a little tiny particle. Uh, they collect those particles and they uh, put them into a mold. They press that mold into a solid, 
And then they'll take that solid and they'll roll it through a mill and, and make a, a sheet or a plate or whatever out of it, a bar. So when you say atomize, I think of a liquid being forced through and and made into little spheres. Is Exactly right. Okay. Um, and then are they using uh, compression to get the heat to, to weld everything together or are they, they putting it in a crucible and heating it up? No, it goes into a mold and it gets um, – it's a process I believe is called a hot isostatic pressing. So it's basically, you know, a hydrostatic pressure that they apply to it. And to be honest, I'm not sure if there's heat involved or not. Huh. Basically, it's what we would call a diffusion bond. You know, they're creating – taking this powder, they're compressing it, they're creating a solid by a process called diffusion bonding. And then they're going and rolling that through a rolling stand or, or, or whatever. Um, I'm going to have to ask my teenager because he actually took physics recently. But I thought I remembered something about on the really high-end scales of pressure, you get a byproduct of heat. Yeah, I, th I think that's probably true, yeah. Yeah, so right. they could be generating heat just, by, just as a function of the pressure. Again, I'm... I'm the college dropout talking to two engineers, so feel free to correct me. Well, when those atoms move across each other, that makes that makes heat. Like when we when we break bolts and stuff at work, when you pick that bolt right up after it's popped, it's it's really hot. You only make that mistake once, don't you? Oh, we do it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we actually get paid to do it, so it's pretty awesome. And then you go, and then you go and be a smart, smart aleck to, to Jared and say, "How'd this break?" And he goes, "Overload." <laughs> I'm not sure, but you let it too close to a redneck. <laughs> um, so the particle steel, they press it and then roll it. Mm -hmm. And by rolling, you mean like at a traditional rolling mill where it yeah. goes between like two ten thousand ton rollers yeah. to thin it out, right? And just like hot rolled or cold rolled, yeah, mild steels. That's pretty cool because I had this image of them dumping all this powder in a giant crucible, and and guys in the silver suits manhandling this this giant vat of of molten metal. Yeah, I think I think um, you would lose a lot of that uh, effect of real fine grain size and real fine carbide particle size if you were to um, to melt it to remelt it. Yeah. So yeah, it's important that they they keep it in the solid state. That's that's high speed. My life is complete now. I know how particle steel is made. You two enjoy the whole rep rest of the show. I'm I'm headed back to the shop. <laughs> All right, and uh, so we're already uh, pretty late into the episode. So let's uh, let's do we'll do an entire standalone episode on heat. But we haven't talked about heat treat yet, and that's the single most important thing when we're talking about metallurgy. Yeah, well, we'll we'll get there, Dan. Don't you worry. Oh, but I got questions, and I I need knowledge. <laughs> you, we, we must do research. <laughs> we could have the discussion right now, and and you could put it into the next episode. I mean, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Kyle's a purist. Okay. So, uh, we'll be be watching for one of the one of the next episodes to Jared to come back and have a heat treating episode. So, if this if we geeked out on steel and it completely bored you, 
and maybe this puts you to sleep. We'll give you a little warning sign. We're going to talk to the metallurgist again, and you can skip it. Those cool guys that saw this opportunity to really learn some fascinating, deep, dark, magical shit will know to pick up the next one because we're going to start on heat treating, and that's when it gets serious. Yeah, and I think we might need to let people let their brains cool off for a little bit before we get into heat treating. You can find all of us at knifeperspective.com. Uh, you can find me at cagedailyknives.com on Instagram, cagedailyknives. Same with all, almost all the other social medias. You want to tell them where you can find you, Dan? You can find Dan at www.dogwoodcustomknives or Dan at dogwoodcustomknives. And always remember, all of your hate-filled, angry mail or concerns about the quality of this show can go to Kyle. At Knife Perspective. Yep. And uh, Jared, you want to tell some people if they want to follow you? I have nothing to plug. <laughs> I don't really do social media. Gotcha. Contact Kyle. He knows where to find me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you have any questions, we can uh, add those to the to the repertoire for the, the next show. Actually... That's probably something we should have for the next show. If you have metallurgical or heat treat questions, go ahead and, and send it to, um, well, I guess Kyle at Knife Perspective because he actually checks his email. I'm old. I don't really do that stuff. But if you've got some questions you'd like for Jared to answer, um, go ahead and send them to us, and we'll get them in the, the next, uh, I guess we'll say Metallurgist Corner. Yep. Does that, does that sound to Mr. Rogers? We'll definitely put up uh, on the stories this time. I put up a uh, ask a question so we can try to pull some of those together for Jared. Thank you, everybody, for listening. It was a, a great show. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Yeah, it was great. Absolutely. Thank you, Jared. And uh, if you would just give me your home number, I've got a, a few more questions I'd like <laughs> to ask. My home number. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, everybody. Night, guys. Well, let's take it to the edge, cause that's what's expected in this discussion. This is the night prospective. Let's get to the point, we're gonna talk about.